Hi, and welcome to Bread. We're a newish, open-minded, spirit-filled, non-denominational church who now meet each week in Hollywood Adventist on the corner of Hollywood Boulevard and Van Ness in Los Angeles. In-person church life, as with the rest of life, is going to take a while to find its shape again post-Covid and slowly and surely is going to be our mantra for a while. All these podcasts are taken for the time being from our Sunday services, hence the not always perfect audio quality and background noises. You can live stream them or watch the videos later on bread.church if that's more your thing. How to Return is the theme of the current series. We hope it serves you well. Amen. You guys can be seated. Thanks, guys. That was lovely. That was lovely. Um, Hey, everyone. Welcome. My name is Raul, and I'm really glad that you're here. Welcome to Bread, if this is your first, second, third, if this is your 50th time, welcome. I believe this is week 17 that we've been back in person, and guys, we're doing pretty well. So why don't you give yourselves a round of applause? (laughs) Amen. Go you. Um, well, today we're going to continue our series that we started a couple weeks ago titled People in Search of a Kingdom, and this theme was central to the overall story of the Bible, and it was uh, what Jesus taught most about. And we started this series by looking at the Old Testament uh, perspective of the kingdom. We saw that it was a place where God's people flourished in relationship to themselves in relationship to one another and in relationship to the land, to creation. Then uh, the following week, we saw how Jesus inaugurated the kingdom through his ministry, life, death, and resurrection. And last week, we learned that the reality of the kingdom, which is here but not yet in its fullness, actually means that we're in the end of days. But that's not actually scary, it's actually full of hope and joy. And today we're going to look at the parables of Jesus. Because when Jesus talked about the kingdom, he did so primarily through parables. And parables are not moral lessons, they're not theological illustrations, they're meant to spark curiosity, to leave us wanting more, to... Uh, cause us to think about it in a meditative way. They're not dogmatic statements. They're not, um, you know, they're meant for us to dwell on, to revisit again and again. Ultimately, what they do is they express the shocking news that God's kingdom has come near, that it has arrived and is arriving through the person of Jesus. And I know parables can be kind of Um, kind of confusing, kind of mysterious. And they typically are when we read our own interpretations or our own ideas into the parables. St. Augustine was a scholar and church leader, and he was famous for doing this with the parable of the Good Samaritan. He read into it his fourth century theology and left out uh, the point that Jesus was trying to make. So if you, if you recall the parable of the Good Samaritan, 
um, you remember that there was a man who was attacked and a uh, religious leader came by and nobody helped, but there was this person, this Samaritan who walked by and gave him the aid that he needed. And so for Augustine, he interpreted it this way. The man who was attacked represented Adam. Jerusalem represented heaven. Jericho represented the moon. The thieves were the devil. The Samaritan was Jesus. The inn was the church. The innkeeper was the Apostle Paul. And the payment was Paul's celibacy. I know, crazy. So Augustine inserted much of his own theology and ideas into Jesus's parable. But it's not at all what, you know, and although these are, you know, mostly Christian ideas, um, it's not what Jesus or the original listeners had in mind. You know, Paul showed up like years after Jesus's uh, resurrection. And I don't think the original listeners would have thought that the payment Jesus was talking about was Paul's celibacy. That would have meant nothing to them. Um, So not to be like Augustine, we must take the first step in understanding the parables to see that they're an expression of Jesus' main goal, which is to announce the arrival of God's kingdom in and through himself and his new community. And so we've got to read the parables with this in mind. The parables of Jesus explain what the kingdom is like. It refutes the religious and societal oppression of Jesus' day and of ours as well. And it undermines their values and agendas by robbing them of their power. Essentially what the parables do is they comfort those who are vulnerable and they confront those who are abusing power. In other words, the kingdom looks like the dead coming to life again and the lost being found. It calls the spiritually bankrupt blessed. It comforts those who mourn. It gives power to the meek. It fills the hungry and thirsty. And it brings the rejects into the game. And if you're bad at sports, that's great news. Because that's me. Um, And so the parable of the lost sons captures this perfectly. And so let's read this. This is Luke 15. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus, this jumping to verse 11, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided properly between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, and he set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. 
He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. He got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of his servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving away for you, and you never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because your brother, this brother of yours, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Luke 15. This passage reminds me of the carne asadas that we used to have growing up. And like in this story, these parties were spontaneous. You know, they started late in the afternoon and often went past midnight. And if you were around the area, you can smell the meat on the grill from blocks away. And if you were to walk in, the first thing you'd notice is the music. You know, we listened to a mix of hip-hop, alternative rock, and some iconic Spanish hits. And every time we had one, it was like a family reunion. Everyone would come out of the woodwork. And all the family came around and brought something to throw on the grill. We had rice, beans, beef, chicken, elote. I know, incredible. Chips and guac, jamaica and horchata. We had it all. And there was also dancing, and we often played Mexican bingo, a thing we call loteria. But it wasn't just a party, it was a carne asada. It told something about who we are and what we're like. That we're family-oriented, that we love to cook with spices and seasoning, that we're hospitable, that that phrase so popular, mi casa es tu casa, is actually true. 
on Instagram, I came around this list of how to survive a carnesada if you ever get invited to one. Um, maybe we can throw our own here at Bread. Uh, and it was dead on. This is what it said. So I'll go through these one by one. So the first thing to know if you're going to survive a carnesada is you gotta be, you gotta bring your own car or be prepared to stay until 4 a.m. The second thing is you've got to say hi to everyone, even that cousin that you see once every other year. Number three is actually you've got to say hi to everyone. <laughs> Number four is eat even if you've already ate. Number five is don't turn down a tequila shot from your Theo. Number six is dance to at least one song. Number seven is take leftovers or be ready to come back the following morning. That's very true. Number eight, don't leave without saying bye to everyone. And number nine is yes, everyone, or they'll talk trash, even if you completed two through seven. So these gatherings revealed something about our family and our values. They showed that we're huge on family. That all gatherings are recommendatory. And if you don't know what recommendatory is, let me explain that to you. It's recommended if you've got something going on, and it's mandatory if you've got nothing going on. So in other words, you've got to show up. Even if, you're, even if you are working, you're encouraged to call off. I mean, we get pretty insane with these. But we don't shy away from hugs and kisses because, you know, these... Uh, expressions are of love are core to who we are and every formality you can think of just goes out the window because it's all about showing up and the same goes for Jesus and his kingdom through this story Jesus showed us something about his kingdom that it too is a party so if Jesus used parables to make announcements about the kingdom, what announcement is being made through this particular parable? We've got to consider the context here. In verses uh, 1 and 2, we read about the situation. And by this point in Jesus' ministry, he had been accused of being a glutton and a drunkard because he was attending so many parties with every kind of person you can think of. Jesus was with people, and wherever people are, there is food. He would have been at the crawfish boil, he would have been at the carne asada, he would have been at the barbecue, and he would have been at it all with the people least likely to be in church. And so in this particular scene, Israel's religious leadership accused Jesus of compromising and being unfaithful to God by including tax collectors, sinners, and outsiders into his new family. But Jesus brilliantly responds with this parable. He responds with an announcement in the form of a story. And this is what he says. He says, the kingdom is here, and this is what it looks like to enter it. And a core part of what Jesus is getting at through this parable is entrance into the kingdom. The religious leaders Jesus was addressing had in their mind what entrance into the kingdom looked like. That it was for those well-behaved. 
that it was for those who followed the law in its entirety, that it was for those who had something to offer. In other words, in other words it was for those who worked for it. In their minds, if you wanted in on the kingdom, if you wanted in on what God was doing, you had to work for it. And this message may not be foreign to us. You know, it's because you and I aren't naturally bent towards grace. In fact, nobody is. Grace is such a foreign concept to us, it, it might as well be alien or otherworldly. It doesn't follow our logic. We see it as weakness because we've conditioned to work, to retaliate, to give people what they deserve, and even to give ourselves what we deserve. We see this in the younger and in the older son. As the younger son prepares to return home, he imagines himself reasoning with his father. And he says to himself, Dad, I'll come work for you. And he thinks that he can work his way back into his father's house. And if we look at the older son, he had the exact same logic. He said to his father, Dad, I've been working for you. He has come to believe that his place in the house is secured by what he does. It's secured by his work. And if we really think about grace, when I take the time to actually think about it, I actually get mad when people get grace. And it's always for selfish reasons. Because I think about, well, what about me? It's almost always self-centered. But grace is always about the other person flourishing. Which means when they flourish, we flourish. Grace is getting what we don't deserve and winning what we didn't work for. In other words, it's doing bad and getting good. And through this story and its characters, Jesus challenges our basis for entrance into the kingdom. Jesus confronts our logic for determining who gets in and who is left out. And grace is at the center of it. So in reading this story, the question I'd like us to consider is this. How do we enter the kingdom? How do we enter the kingdom? To see the answer, we've got to first turn to the younger son. So let's recap his story a little bit. The younger son is an adventurer. He's a bit of an individualist and self-centered. The younger son wishes death upon his father by asking for his inheritance before his father's death. And to do so was one of the most wicked sins that was deserving of death. And after the son, you know, gets what he wants from his dad, he takes off. It says he goes to Vegas and he gambles it all. And he's faced with famine, with a famine that forces him to work on a farm feeding pigs. And he hits the lowest point in this scene as he begins to crave what the pigs are eating. And it seemed right there and then, that this was the end. And Jesus' listeners would have been thinking, perfect. This is exactly what he deserves for being disobedient. He should have been more respectful. He should have behaved 
you should have, been patient, you name it. That's exactly what the listeners were thinking. And in that low point, the younger son remembers home. How good even the hired servants had it at his dad's house. And so he decides to go back. And as he walks back, he, he prepares a speech. He, he comes up with something that he thinks is good. He says, Dad, okay, I've, I've sinned against heaven and against earth. Um, take me back and I'll work for you. All right, that sounds good. And while he's afar off, Jesus says that his father sees him. He has compassion and he runs to him. He runs to him. An act that no older man of this day would have done because it involved lifting up his garment and just sprinting. And this was considered to be shameful. And before the son even gets his planned speech out of his mouth, the, fa- you know, the father comes to him and he says, welcome home. He embraces him, he kisses him, he welcomes him home. And the father says to the servants, hey, put a ring on him. Get the best robe, throw it over him, and put sandals on his feet. And these aren't just accessories. These aren't just, you know, nice little things. But these said something about who you were. Your, your, your identity was tied to the clothes that you wore. And so what, in a sense, what the father was doing was reminding him that he's a son, that he's home, that he is in his rightful place. And the last thing the father says is, kill the fattened calf, we are having a carne asada. And as the son comes home, he's met with grace. He enters the father's house, not because of this elaborate speech that he had planned, not because of his excuses. He enters the father's house because the father has grace for the son. And so when we wander, when we turn away for however long or however little, we can expect grace when we come back. We can expect grace when we come back to the Father. And if we find ourselves in a similar situation as this younger son, if you identify with him, notice how the Father ignores his excuses. The story doesn't record anything about the Father acknowledging the words of his son. The Father ignores his excuses. And it's almost as if the Father is saying, You don't have to explain where you've been. I'm just glad you're home. Now let me remind me, now let me remind you of who you are. Get the family ring, get the right clothes on, and let's celebrate. Friends, church needs to be a place where we celebrate people coming home, whether it's for the first time or the hundredth time. In some Christian circles that I've been in, Missing a Sunday is pretty intense. And one is interrogated for missing a service. 
and you know, I try to give them the benefit of the doubt that they're wondering where I'm at, that I'm that they're curious, that they that they care, but it often comes off like I'm needing to give an excuse for where I've been. And I'm aware this can be the experience that some of us may have had in church. But at Bread, you're welcome to visit for however long, however little you'd like. One thing we say here is that you are here on your own terms. And it's because we actually believe in this thing called grace. So coming home isn't just fitting into a box. It's discovering your God-given identity. That you're loved, that the house is better off with you, that you're called, that you're gifted. The kingdom and the king is who we come home to because it's who we're made for. And many people hesitate to come home, I think, because of fear that if they show who they really are, that they'll be rejected. And if fear is keeping any of us from coming home, can we just listen to the words of the king who says, trust me, don't be afraid. And he can say that because God knows the best parts of us, the parts we, you know, put on display. He knows those Instagram moments. And he also knows the parts that we don't want anyone to see. And he doesn't just embrace us, he celebrates us. And so in the younger son, Jesus announces this, we enter the kingdom by grace. We enter the kingdom by grace. Let's turn now to the older son. And I relate to this character the most. Because like me, the older son is a little bit of a perfectionist. You know, he stays in the lane. He doesn't come out of the carpool lane when the lines are solid. He's, he's sure to tip 20%. I mean, he does it all. He's got a strong sense of right and wrong. And so when his younger brother comes home... After committing one of the worst sins, this older brother is furious. He is the Pharisees and religious leaders who are upset at Jesus for welcoming and eating with rejects and misfits. And when he hears the noise of the party, he asks a servant about it. He says, hey, what's going on? And the servant happily tells him, hey, your, your, your brother has come home. Your dad killed the fattened calf because he's got him back safe and sound. And notice what the older brother does. He refuses to go inside. He's angry. He's resentful. He may feel that his father will take from his inheritance and give it to his younger brother someday. He feels threatened. He feels the father isn't thinking logically. He's thinking, Dad, this doesn't make any sense. What are you doing? And while he's outside fuming, the father comes to him. He doesn't go in to confront the father. The father, like with the younger son, comes outside and meets with the older son. Instead of the older son coming home, home comes to him. 
And the father goes out and he pleads with his son, which I think is an incredible image. Imagine that. Imagine God pleading with us when we stand in the way of what he's doing. He doesn't just reject us. He says, hey, come be a part of what I'm doing. The older son responds and the father hears him out. He hears him out because love listens. And he says, Dad, all this time I've been good. I've stayed in my lane. I've been obedient. I've been slaving away for you. Henry Nouwen uh, accurately summarizes the feeling of the older son. And he writes this in his book, The Return of the Prodigal Son. He writes, he did his duty. He worked hard every day and fulfilled all of his obligations but he became increasingly unhappy and unfree. So it's possible to be in the house and still be unhappy and unfree. And this is often the case when grace is not our motivation. It's the case when we feel like we have to earn our place in the house. It's the case when we feel we need it to be rewarded again and again. And notice the older son's language here. He says, I've been slaving away. This is the language of the unloved. It's the language of the disconnected. And the older son refuses to go in. And so we may be in the house and yet feel unloved, yet feel disconnected, and feel resentment or anger towards others who appear to be having it going good for them. And I don't want to dismiss your feelings or your reasons for it, but it would make me sad if any of us refused the kingdom because of these feelings. Someone else's blessing or homecoming or mistake can't keep us from participating in the kingdom if we allow it to breed resentment, and anger. But we can't let it. And so rather than withdrawing from the Father, rather than withdrawing from the kingdom, it would do us good to receive some grace. Because outside the kingdom is where our souls are vulnerable. It's where confusion makes a home. It's where resentment and bitterness thrive. And it's where joy cannot live. And so notice that the older son, I'm sorry, notice that this story ends with no resolution for the older son. We hear the father's response, but we don't know what happened. It's like that last scene in Inception with the dream totem. We just see it spinning and spinning and spinning. And then the scene cuts to black. And we're left wondering if that reality was real or if it was a dream. And Christopher Nolan leaves the viewer to make up their mind. Same with Jesus in this case. With no resolution for the older son, it's, a, it's as if Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, will you come in? It's as if he's saying to us, will you join in? Will you enter the kingdom, not by your own means, but by my grace? The religious leaders refused to join because 
of who Jesus was with. Because Jesus was crossing socioeconomic and ethnic boundaries. And if we're followers of Jesus, then we must do the same. Because we believe Jesus destroyed all division and that grace is what enables us to participate in Jesus' new mixed community. And so in this story, we see that both sons are lost, both sons are outside, and both sons are met with grace. And they're not just met with grace, they're actually confronted by it. They're confronted by grace because it demands a response from them. It means that it leaves us with a crisis of decision. Will we enter the kingdom? Will we participate in Jesus' new community? In the kingdom, identities are returned, pain is taken away, joy is restored, and we have communion with the king. The lost are found, the dead are made alive again, and we enter all of this by grace. It breaks through to people who don't deserve it, to people like you and me. So how does that sit with us? Who are the people that we call undeserving? Is it us? Is it someone else? Do we have someone in mind? At our last Christmas service in Los Feliz Elementary, um, I was helping break down after the Christmas service. It was late in the evening, and we were putting away uh, our decorations, Christmas lights, and everything else. We were folding tables, and we were getting ready to pack up and go home. And I'll tell you something, I do not miss breaking down and setting up every day. I love the Los Feliz Elementary, but the fact that we just come here and it's set up is a dream. Um, anyway, so we were breaking down after the Christmas service, and as I was standing at the doorway, um, just, you know, putting away the light, a man came in from outside, and he looked like um, he was homeless. He looked like he had been on the streets for quite some time, and he asked me, He said, hey, do you have anything to eat? And without thinking twice, without actually looking, without actually considering, oh, this person is hungry and probably hasn't ate in several days, I blatantly said no. I was doing the good Christian thing, the good church thing, and tearing down, and I couldn't be bothered. And thankfully, um, Alice, who used to work here, Uh, She's in London now, and we miss her very much. Um, She witnessed the whole thing. And she didn't confront me, but she actually tended to the man's needs. And in that moment, I was gutted. I saw, man, I had this opportunity to extend grace, to listen, to be present, to help someone, and I just blew it. And I remember feeling just terrible and thinking to myself, 
I assumed this person was undeserving. I assumed this person was trying to get in the way of me doing the work, of me staying in my lane, of me doing the good church thing that I was supposed to be doing. And so it's the ones who show grace. The ones who show grace are the ones who know grace for themselves. And I've learned that those who come counting on God's grace are actually the ones used powerfully. They have stories of God providing exactly what they need. They have stories of God speaking to the depths of their heart. They worship free from what others think because they rely not on how, you know, how good they've been, their behavior, but they rely on God's grace. And so when we rely on God's grace, we see all the signs of the kingdom in our lives. And like the younger brother, we are free in the house. We know who we are, and we know ourselves to be cared for. And so as we end, I'd like us to consider who do we identify with? For those who've been around church for a while, we may want to relate to the younger son. But I'd invite you first to ask, in what ways have I been the older son? In some way, we're all like the younger son, feeling like we need to pay for our sins. We're also all like the older son, feeling like we need to be rewarded for a good behavior. But we don't need to pay for our sins because Jesus already did that for us. We don't need to flog ourselves on the back every time we sin because Jesus endured that for us. The cross took care of all of our sins, past, present, future, once and for all. We can't undo it. We can't earn our way into it. We can only receive God's grace in it. And so like I mentioned, I'm, I'm a bit of a perfectionist. I have a strong sense of right and wrong, so I often feel like I need to be rewarded for my good behavior. Like the older son, when I feel like I've been most behaved, I want to be recognized, I want to be praised, I want to be, I want my name hung on a plaque on a wall. I want the goat to celebrate with my friends, to use the language of the older son. And it's not bad to want these, but it is misleading to think that we get rewarded for our faithfulness to God with materialistic things. We don't follow God to get rewards and accolades because God himself is a reward. He's our reward here and now day by day, the love of the Father, the presence of Jesus, the empowerment of the Spirit. Not for being well-behaved, but for simply being open and saying yes to grace. And so, um, can I have the band come up? Grace, however, isn't cheap. 
In the story, the father absorbs the wrongdoing of his sons in the same way that Jesus absorbed all the wrongdoing that we've done. And it's in Jesus' absorption that we can live freely by grace. And so I want to end with um, the story. Not a story, actually. Another Christopher Nolan reference. Sorry, he's just one of my favorite directors. Um, he's incredible. But in the scene um, of the movie Dunkirk, it's towards the end of the movie. And there are thousands of soldiers stranded on the beach in France or Belgium, one of the two. And they're waiting to get evacuated because the um, German army is surrounding them. And there's a sense of desperation. Soldiers are trying to swim across the channel. They're trying to come up with other ways of floating across. And every attempt leads to failure. And as the big, giant Navy battleships come close to shore to pick soldiers up, they can't get close to shore because of the shallowness. And so they're relying on these piers that are getting bombed. And so in, this, in these final moments, with such desperation, everyone is looking out to the sea across the channel, and one of the admirals picks up his binoculars, looks out, and he sees something. He sees specks on the horizon. And a grin comes over his face. And as he turns around, he's, his, uh, his officer, whoever, his mate, looks at him and says, what is it? And the officer just says, home. Home is coming for us. And some of us may be feeling like we've been gone from home for a while. And maybe you came here and you're not really necessarily prepared to come back home, but in this moment, home is coming to you. Home comes to all of us. And so for those of us who identify with the younger son, let us leave behind our excuses. Let's leave behind our pigsties. Let's come home to the one who loves us, to the one who receives us. And if any of us identify with the older son, I'd like to ask, what is keeping us from participating in what God is doing? What's keeping us from entering into the kingdom? We're going to sing a song, but in that moment, I'd encourage you, just tell him. Let's trust him and accept God's grace, if we've got anger, if we've got resentment, if it feels like God isn't fair, whatever we come with today, let's just bring it before him and remember that at the end of the day, that God is our reward. And so for all of us, this story leaves us with a decision to make. What will we do with grace? What will we do with grace? The band's going to sing a song, um, and if you can stand and uh, we'll worship for a bit, then we'll pray as we always do.